How glorious a truth that our triune God heard our worship just now. The beautiful reminder, singing alongside the angels, it's a pretty cool choir to join up with. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, beginning in the 16th century, was not the creation of a new faith. It was not the invention of a new religion. It was a call to return, reformation, reformation, to return to biblical Christianity, or as Jude put it, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Holy Spirit, through the word of God, convinced men and women that the Roman Catholic Church had failed to guard the deposit entrusted to them and had abandoned the gospel. The reformers' call was to return to the sources. Have you ever tried to read somebody talking about somebody else? It is, I remember in different aspects of studies, you think about authors whose works have uh, kind of stood the test of time. Um, In case you didn't know this, it's easier generally to read those authors themselves than to ever read somebody trying to explain those authors whose works will fall by the wayside, just sit on a shelf and collect dust. Uh, The names that we know and the books that we know, we know them uh, throughout history because they're worth knowing. That's why they endure. And this is post, not just scripture. Scripture, we'll talk about um, an aspect of that. But they wanted to go back to the sources in the 16th century. Not just 13th, 12th, 11th century authors. Not just 3rd, 2nd, 3rd, or 4th century authors. They wanted to go back to the word. They wanted to go back to the fountain of truth, which was the Bible. And they wanted to align their worship with scripture. So their call was return to the sources, back to the, back to the fountain, back to the sources, that is the scripture. And their teachings, the teachings of the reformers and sermons, commentaries, books, confessions, catechisms, that's enough to fill a library. Um, but their emphases, the emphases of the reformers calling us back to scripture have been boiled down into five brief statements, five brief phrases, things that uh, some of you wear on the back of your t-shirts. I know I do as often as possible. Things that are on the the screen uh, behind me. Five brief statements. Uh, Said it before, sort of tongue-in-cheek. If something's worth saying theologically, it should be said in Latin. Um, that, That bears historical witness, even if we don't really speak Latin, although some of you know a lot of Latin. Here are the five emphases a biblical Christianity recovered, restored by the reformers. Uh, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Sola gratia. Grace alone is God's motivation for saving us. Sola fide. I wish Carolyn was here today because that's her, that's her license plate. It's one thing that I have to try to not covet because that's really cool. Sola fide, faith alone is the means of our salvation. Solus Christus, Christ alone is our mediator and savior. And then finally, soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone is the ultimate purpose for all things. These five statements beautifully summarize reformed theology, but not just reformed theology. I believe that they summarize biblical Christianity. I don't understand what someone would mean when they say they are a Christian if they don't submit to these things. I really, I really don't. There are other doctrines. It's like, okay, I understand a difference of interpretation, difference of opinion. Um, but but ha- if you reject these, I really just, I don't understand what you mean by biblical Christianity. Uh, because this is the definition of that. What's our logo here at Risen King Church? What is it? A crown. Something looks like a little bit like that. Hopefully that looks familiar. Some of you have it on the front of your t-shirts. The crown. How many points are on that crown? Oh, five. What a not coincidence at all. Not an accident. When designing the logo, we insisted on there being five points. Have you ever wondered what those five points stand for. Gerald hasn't. Gerald knows. We talk about it a lot. (laughs) Five 
points of the crown stand for the five solas of the Reformation or the five emphases of biblical Christianity. You know, in my mind, they secondarily also point to the five points of the doctrines of grace, but primarily five solas of the Refor- Reformation. We wrote up a brief summary of the church to use on like invitation cards a few years ago. It's on the website as well. It's kind of this, well, what, do we, what do we believe in? try to get it all into one succinct statement. This is that statement. At Risen King, we believe, according to Scripture, that salvation is a gift of God's grace received through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the glory of God alone. If you read that carefully, do you see what it contains? If you're looking for it, if you have eyes to see, maybe that's a little bit, a little bit over the top, you'll see the five solas. We believe, according to Scripture, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. Sola gratia, grace is God's grace, the motivation for our salvation received through faith. Sola fide, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, solus Christus, to the glory of God alone. It's that important. When you look at that, maybe you don't think Latin phrases. Maybe you do. But once again, what is biblical Christianity if it isn't this? This is what scripture is teaching. This is the revelation of God for us in Christ, in his word. This month, we are going to preach through these five solas. So we can see each of them from scripture and better understand them and better understand their importance to us. And we'll start at the beginning, sola scriptura. Sola Scriptura, a Latin phrase that translates as Scripture alone. We call them the five solas, the five onlys, the five alones. This idea of Sola Scriptura has been referred to as the formal cause of the Reformation. When you think Reformation, you think the difference between Roman Catholicism and uh, Reformed or Protestant Christianity that we would align ourselves with, we see ourselves in that strand, You might think, well, what's the difference? And you might run right to justification by faith. It's what Luther was arguing about, what Calvin was writing about. Um, What is the gospel if not justification by faith alone? And that was uh, a a material cause, as it sometimes was. But the formal cause, the underlying issue that drove the reformers to their conclusions on all other issues was this. We need to return to the Bible as the sole, final, ultimate authority for everything that we believe and think and do as Christians. It is scripture that stands over everything else, or it is scripture that is foundational to everything else. Uh, It is the rock. Everything else is sand. Scripture alone, let's define our terms. By scripture, I mean the 66 books contained in the Protestant canon, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. If you need clarification as to which those are, I can spout them off for you. Um, We can just talk about that after. No apocryphal books between the New Testaments are contained in that canon. Those are not scripture. No subsequent so-called gospel accounts, gospel of Thomas, gospel of Judas, gospel of whatever other random name uh, some later person decided to ascribe it to. None of those after the New Testament and none of the writings from the Apostolic Fathers. I've got this great book, um, Apostolic Fathers in English, translated from the Greek. You can buy a really cool hardbound copy of it in Greek. Um, Writers immediately after the age of the apostles, after the apostle John died, some of whom knew them, and they wrote. They wrote letters to churches. They wrote letters to churches like in Rome or to Corinth, to places, Ephesus, places that are also in the New Testament. But even then, those authors and every other Christian knew there was a difference between the apostle John taking his quill or his stylus to the papyrus that he wrote Revelation on There's a difference between that and when any other person put, we'll just make it simpler, pen to paper in subsequent generations. There is scripture, that which is scripture. There's that which is not scripture. Genesis through Malachi, Matthew through Revelation. Fixed, fixed body of works. 
By claiming sola scriptura, we mean that the Bible alone is the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. The Bible alone, scriptures, Bible, same thing. The Bible alone is the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. And and another way of understanding this, or perhaps it's the reason for this claim, why is the Bible the ultimate, the Bible alone the ultimate authority for life and doctrine? It's because God's special revelation comes only in the scriptures. That is what we have for God revealing himself to us in a specific way is found in the scriptures. Sola scriptura, well, to put it, to put it simply, we believe this. When scripture speaks, God speaks. When scripture speaks, God speaks. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible is unique. It stands in a category all by itself. Nothing else comes close. No creed, no confession, no catechism, no council or synod or convention or conference, no pope or pastor or teacher or book or sermon or commentary or study Bible note is on equal footing with the scriptures when it comes to authority. Nothing. And the same is, is obviously absolutely true for the books or teaching of other religions, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Watchtower magazine, or the New World Translation, which is a, not accurate. Uh, I've I'm not a Greek expert, although I've taken a lot of it, and I have more experience in Greek than the translators of the New World Translation, and the most basic, under- I think Timothy might have more experience translating Greek. We, we tutored just this year, like, haven't even made it through the whole book yet, and I think he might have more experience than that. It is a um, theologically motivated translation that can be shown in its inaccuracy. I just want to draw that out. The New World Translation, science and health with the key to the scriptures, the teachings of Buddha, the varieties of Hindu texts, none of these have the authority of the Bible. Right? So we really have two categories of works, right? There's the Bible, and then there's like everything else. And only one of those categories has ultimate final authority, which of course is what ultimate final authority means. It is the scripture. Scripture alone is our final, ultimate authority. It is unique. And what I want to talk about today, people have asked, what's your text? It's like, well, like all of it. (laughs) Like, good luck flipping. I'm going to put some references. My recommendation would be maybe write down the references and go back and look at that verse and those paragraphs. Spend all week just looking at those different texts because there's a a number of them. But I want to talk about the uniqueness of scripture today and then see how we try to apply that uniqueness in our church, how we need to apply it in our lives and, and beyond. The Bible first has a unique origin. The Bible has a unique origin. Where did it come from? How did we, how did we get it? Love, love, love Hebrews chapter one. Um, I like Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens, how he starts off his books, right? Famous, Marley was dead, dead as a doornail. Then he starts talking about a doornail in Christmas Carol. It's like, that's brilliant. Best of times was the worst of times in A Tale of Two Cities. Like, ooh, that'll just catch your attention. Nothing matches Hebrews 1. Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. God spoke. What's the origin of the Bible? God spoke. Hebrews 1 isn't the only passage that says that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 also speaks of this. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Isaiah wasn't just like, you know what God's people need? I got this figured out. Here, give me, give me, some, uh, give me some parchment. Let me scratch this out. No prophecy ever was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, can't talk about the Bible without 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. If any of you were sitting closer, you would feel 
some aspect of my breath, namely the spittle that probably falls off. Hopefully you guys are all far enough away. But you feel breath, words coming out of your mouth. That's the inspiration, which is kind of an interesting, like inspiration is sort of breathed in, but this is actually breathed out. Just like the words I'm breathing out of my mouth. Scripture, God spoke. Those men spoke from God. So it's God speaking through those men. All scripture carries this. It's breathed out from God. And what a great text. Isaiah 55, 11, another passage that frequently comes to my mind and is a source of prayer before I come up here, where God says, my word that goes out from my mouth and talks about its effectiveness, which is just a later point. So I'm not going to talk about that yet. This, well, I guess I have to be careful because I have like not biblical, like the, you know, maps and scales and concordances. Got to be precise, right? Most of this, not like the leather binding. God spoke this. That's its origin. Second Peter 1.3 says, his divine power has granted this to us. So if you, if you rewind in the body, the life of our church for a few weeks, we think about the greatness of God, God who is sovereign, God who is transcendent, And you take the whole sum of that and so much more that could be said, all of that is behind the giving of God's word. It's from God, from his mouth. We could see how many different times and how many different passages does it say things like, thus says the Lord. This is what Yahweh says, or God spoke Or God said, write this down. Or in the New Testament, looking back at the Old Testament, sometimes it says, the Holy Spirit said. It's like, I thought it was David. Well, so was it David? Or was it the Holy Spirit? And the answer, of course, is yes. (laughs) Both. David, carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. What is the Bible's origin? God speaking by the author's prophets and apostles through the Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's self-revelation. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I'm going to do. Things that we would never know if God had not opened that up and revealed that to us. That's the Bible's origin. It comes directly from God to us. The Bible has a unique origin. The Bible also has unique perfection. The Bible's perfect, and it has unique perfection. Wonderful passage about this. If I were to say, how, where, how do we know that the Bible is perfect? Where does it speak about that? Got to go to Psalm 19, right? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, is this, than than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, And drippings of the honeycomb, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Law, teaching, instruction, the Bible is perfect. Jesus spoke of this as well in the New Testament. John 10.35, for instance, he says, it's almost a passing comment, but how even the passing comments of Jesus are worth stopping and taking note of. He said this in John chapter 10, verse 35. He says, scripture cannot be broken. Not, not scripture must not be broken. Be like, guys, you really need to work hard to make sure that these things happen. No, scripture cannot be be broken. Just as it is impossible for God to die and impossible for God to lie, it's also impossible for his word not to take place. What else can you say that about? I try to like hedge, uh, hedge all my promises with my girls. Like uh, if, I, if you were like writing out this is like there's all these footnotes and caveats. Like I intend to do this 
within these boundaries and less circumstances outside my control. <laughs> it's like this disclaimer. I was, yeah, can we do this, Daddy? Oh, yes, absolutely, as long as everything else like, works. Because I don't want to speak a promise to them and then break that promise, and I don't know what's going to happen. Like, do, you know what's, do you know that you're going to get home today? I don't know that I'm, where are we going to go out to eat? I don't know if we're going to go out to eat or where we're going to go out to eat. I have an intention. It might not happen, right? Even Proverbs talks that that's wisdom, right? Like I have my plan. Yeah, I'm going to go that way. And the Lord's like, actually, I'm going to direct your steps way over there. <laughs> you're not going anywhere near where you think that you were going. And that's my word. My word's not perfect. My word can be broken through any number of situations. But what about the word of God? What about the scriptures? The scriptures, Jesus said, cannot be broken. And we see that demonstrated throughout the gospels, not just the gospels. It starts in the Old Testament. It moves its way through and just continues to build. And it's language, like I couldn't even take a slide. It would take an all week to try to uh, unpack all of the different times where it's, the scriptures talk about they must be or they have been fulfilled. You start reading Matthew, you start reading John, start reading any of the Gospels, start reading into Acts or other things. You start seeing this fulfilled language. There's a promise made and a promise kept, down to little things. If you're just reading the Old Testament, you're like, well, that has nothing to do with Jesus. Oh, it does. <laughs> the tearing of his garment. When he's crucified on the cross, the scripture must be fulfilled. I'm thirsty, scripture being fulfilled. As the psalmist was tormented, so Jesus was tormented. So many different things. Out of Egypt I called my son. He shall be called a Nazarene, right? He's going to be coming out of Bethlehem. He's going to be coming out of Egypt. You look at that. All of this is fulfilled. Why is it fulfilled? Because the scripture can't be broken. Why can't it be broken? Because the Bible has unique perfection. Nothing like it. Feel free. Compare it to anything. It will all fall short. The scripture is firm and it stands, it's perfect, it cannot be broken. There are terms about this perfection that, that we use when we're discussing this, things that we talk about inspiration a little bit, we could also talk about inerrancy or infallibility. The Bible is inerrant, without error, it is infallible, it, incapable of making a mistake, incapable of speaking something about God, about Christ, about sin, about salvation, about anything. It's incapable of making a mistake on any of the subjects that it covers. The Second London Baptist Confession, a Reformed document, not Scripture, but we'll talk about it a little bit faithful as it points us to Scripture. It says this, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The Bible has unique perfection. Those who've gone before us recognize this. It has no errors. It contains no mistakes. It has never been wrong, and it can never be proven to be wrong. And some in the past have been like, oh, that's not true. Like, look at these ways that it was wrong. These people never existed. There never was a King David. He's just a historical figment of the scriptures, authors' uh, imaginations until they find proof of the existence of those people groups and they find proof of the existence of those type of things and then suddenly those arguments just kind of get shuffled and they move on to the next, right? We don't need to prove the reliability of scripture, we accept the reliability of scripture. It can take all comers, it always has, it always will. It has a unique perfection, it is the word of God. All teachers, all teachers, Writing or speaking are fallible. They can make mistakes. They could be right. They could be wrong. But the scripture is God speaking. For it to be wrong means that God is wrong. So we ask ourselves, can God be wrong? No. How can God be wrong? Did, did he forget well, what has he revealed about himself? I know the end from the beginning. <laughs> In case you didn't know, like that's everything. <laughs> and actually he knows beyond that. He couldn't have forgotten. Uh, did he change his mind about something? God is not a son of man that he should change his mind. Is he lying? It's impossible for God to lie. How, how could God be wrong? If God cannot be wrong, how could his word be wrong? 
If any other tradition, written or spoken, any other book, any other man, any other anything, if anything else is infallible, any other creation of man or group of men, church, group of churches, any other document is also infallible, then men become the authority infallibly or with perfect correctness interpreting God's word. And so if you have a fixed document that's infallible and you have a non-fixed, right, growing, still active, infallible group that helps you to interpret this other infallible and you say they're equal, what really happens? As a new situation arises that this group can help interpret this infallibly, then really what you say is equal, the fixed one, the Bible in this illustration, really just kind of becomes a little bit less because this is helping us with this. I mean, maybe it's faithfully doing that or not, but if it's infallibly, they, they cannot make a mistake. This doesn't speak to a certain thing specifically, but this can interpret it specifically. Then all of a sudden, we're trusting those authorities over what we're trusting God's word. So you cannot have two distinct ultimate authorities. And this happens so commonly. This was the issue at the heart of the Reformation. No self-respecting, maybe we say Pope-respecting, Roman Catholic would ever say that Scripture does not have authority. Like we need to be careful about what was or was not being argued about. Like everything I said, is it, is it perfect in its origin? Like is it perfect in its content? Like every Roman Catholic individually, corporately, like absolutely. The Bible is the word from God's mouth. And it's infallible. And you know what else is infallible? The church is infallible. The church who can help us to interpret some of the sticky matters about the church. And so then the word of God just lowered. And the traditions of men raised because the church is infallible as the word is infallible. And those two things cannot coexist. One will be sacrificed to the other. And that's what took place in the Reformation. Really, it kind of went further too because it got common people like, you know, you. You know, the word's pretty holy and you're pretty lousy. And so really, you, you're not smart enough to access the word. So you need interpreters. You need the church to tell you what God's word says, right? It, it doesn't even need to be in your language. You don't even need to be able to read it. Matter of fact, the priests don't even need to be able to read it because they don't need to understand. So the people don't need to understand. The priests don't need to understand because the church understands. Trust the church with your souls. And in case that ever gets clipped out, right? Don't trust the church with your souls. Trust God with your souls. That's the point that we're trying to make. But do you see what starts to happen here? And the distance that starts to be created over, over centuries where two infallible sources starts to become imbalanced and God's word falls by the wayside and man's traditions begin to be escalated. Popes, councils, traditions, they had been elevated to a status of infallibility equal to God's word. And since the church was needed in order to interpret God's word for his people, I already mentioned the reality, tradition placed higher than the Bible. Not many of, I know most of you, know most of your backgrounds, I know not many of you grew up Roman Catholic. Some of you did. And so you may be like, oh, phew, I don't care what the Pope says. I've never cared what the Pope says, so I'm good. As if we weren't susceptible to this same danger as if we cannot begin to elevate tradition or individuals to a place of infallibility, kind of caring less what St. John said and more what John Calvin or John Owen or John Nathan Edwards or John Machen or John Murray or John MacArthur or John Piper or John Frame or John Ambler. Oh, wait, my name's Peter. What's with John? I mean, that's a lot. It's not even exhaustive. There's other names too, but mainly it's just John's. All of these are fallible teachers, or whoever your favorite is, right? John Sproul or R.C. Sproul, all fallible teachers. 
Fallible teachers who should be listened to only so far as they faithfully teach the infallible scriptures. Are we submitting to this or are we not submitting to this? And if the teacher is not submitting to it, start here. This is not faithful from God's word. Then you are to reject it. I am fallible except when I'm accurately giving you God's infallible word. But it's, it's his infallibility, not mine. So do you care more what this John or this Paul says or your favorite author on issue? Where are you going to go first? Who are you going to believe? Let's be careful about that, right? Like, I love confessions and catechisms and creeds, so long as they faithfully instruct us in God's word. The Bible has a unique origin, it has unique perfection, it has unique benefits, or originally I was going to call this profitability, it just seemed like a really big word to to have. If you can think of a better way to do this, please let me know, because I just wrestled with this one. Unique benefits. The Second London Baptist Confession, again, puts this wonderfully. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. The Bible is sufficient. All things necessary for God's glory and our salvation, our faith, and our life contained explicitly, or we could say implicitly, drawn from God's word. It's like, whoa, 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 what's this explicit, implicit, right? Uh, the word was God. Jesus is God made flesh explicit. God is three persons in one Godhead. Implicit, right? That's, that's drawn from it. That is scriptural, but it's not like I can go to Romans chapter whatever and read God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing, one divine nature, right? No passage says that. No passage uses the word trinity or triunity, yet we can go to 2 Corinthians, go to other places where it talks about Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Go to the baptism of Jesus, where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all acted, right? So it's, it's implicitly drawn from it, not explicitly stated, but that's necessary for our salvation, what is revealed in scripture to profit or benefit us spiritually? The Bible has unique benefits. What are those benefits? First, it reveals Christ. It reveals Christ and his gospel. The good news of salvation in his name. Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Does that on more than one occasion. John 5, 39, he rebukes some of his opponents saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that testify or bear witness about me. Maybe like, we don't need you, Jesus, because we have the scriptures pointing us to eternal life. He's like, you missed something that the scriptures testify about me so you can have eternal life. You don't get salvation without Jesus, ever. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. I would remind you, Paul wrote, brothers, sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, what is this gospel by which we are being saved? I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Scriptures, this unique benefit, revealing Christ and his gospel to us. We look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 about the word of God, all scripture breathed out by God. But we can often miss verse 15. I love verse 15. Or Paul's pointing to Timothy and reminding him about the sacred writings. Is another way we could talk about scripture or the Bible. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus. Old Testament scriptures 
And then as the New Testament scriptures at this were beginning to be compiled, these things are what are able, Timothy, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What other book provides that? Nothing that isn't either the Bible or pointing you to the Bible can be said to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals God, Christ as gospel. It reveals God's will. Uh, there's two, two wills, right? Not two com, uh, competing desires from God, but two ways in which we can speak about God's will. That which is his secret will, that which is ordained to be happened to, to happen according to God's sovereignty, like we talked about creation, providence, history, and uh, redemption as well. Um, the secret things that belong to the Lord, like Deuteronomy talked about. There's also God's revealed will. This is how you are to live. This is what you are supposed to do. And that's what he's talking about. That's what I'm talking about here. The Bible uniquely reveals God's will for us so that all scripture that is breathed out by God in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is, is from God for what? It is profitable. Profitability, benefit, helpful, useful, right? Useful for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is useful so that you could be complete. Who God made you to be, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Good work, which Ephesians 2.10, God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. The reason why you are saved, to live out what it is to be a son or daughter of God, to look like a little Christ walking around, living out faith and repentance. And the Bible was breathed out by God and has the benefit of revealing to you God's will. This is what it looks like to be my son or daughter walking in this world. What other book would point you and tell you this is what God has for you and wants from you? Nothing except the Bible that has come from God. Second Peter 1.3, another really important passage about this, says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How do I live in a manner that pleases God? I asked that question a number of times throughout 1 Timothy. How do we live a life that pleases God, right? Like, well, first it's repent and believe, Right? Okay, now, now what? How do I live? Now that I have repented, now that I do trust in Christ, now what? How do I live in godliness? How do I live in accordance to wealth or lack of wealth, health or lack of health? How do we live in the church? This is a whole aspect of Timothy. What does Christianity look like? I need to know all these questions that pertain to life and that pertain to godliness, right? Our physical, normal existence and our spiritual existence. Not trying to divorce those two, but we have those different parts. We're body and soul. How do we do this? The Bible uniquely reveals God's will. They would have the answers to all of those questions. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And then the unique, another unique benefit that it has is that the Bible accomplishes God's purposes. The Bible accomplishes God's purposes. In Romans 15, so what, what exactly, what about those Old Testament? You know, some people say, let's just rip out the Old Testament, let's just be a New Testament people. They're wrong. That's, that's heresy, but Paul addresses it in the New Testament. Romans 15, verse four. Whatever was written in former days, Genesis through Malachi, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We have that encouragement. We have that endurance through seeing who God is, what he's promised, what he's fulfilled, and how he's equipped his people to walk by faith like Hebrews 11 walks us through. That's accomplishing God's purposes. And then that passage that I already mentioned a little bit earlier, Isaiah 55, this is so picturesque. I hope you know this passage. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. I'm thankful for all those things. Some of you aren't thankful for bread, but I'm thankful for bread. Sorry, 
Just like that. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We did a show of hands. How many of us have spoken useless, empty words? All of our hands would go up. How many of us have made empty threats against our children? Unfortunately, if we're a parent or anything having to do with children, we've all made empty threats. Right? I used to make all sorts of empty threats. I think I've confessed this before. I have two older sisters, get really upset, and I would disinvite them to my birthday party. And they would remind me that I was going to be at our house and they lived there, and they were probably helping my mom, and that did not help my young, unsanctified temper. But empty threat. Uh, I wanted them at my birthday party. I just also wanted them to let me do something other than just be the dog when they were playing Barbies. You know, it was just a really hard childhood. True story, true story. God's words are not empty words. God's words are true words. God's words are powerful words. Just as God spoke creation into existence, powerful words, everything he speaks accomplishes his purposes. Accomplishes God's purposes. First Peter chapter one, since you have been born again, ooh, that's good, regeneration, right? Uh, this new life that the Old Testament spoke of, that Jesus spoke of, how, how is it that we're born again, not of perishable seed, right? It's not a human thing, of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. You have been made new. You have been granted spiritual life through God's word. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. Let everything else fall away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Bible has unique benefits. Bible also has a unique role. The Bible has a unique role as, as judge or as the standard The Bible has a unique role. We see this in judging gospel preachers as blessed or accursed. We can go stronger with that, right? Blessed or damned. I'm preacher of the gospel. That's an important distinction, right? Heaven or hell, who decides if the gospel is one or the other, and if the preacher heads in one of those directions, it is the Bible. Galatians 1, Paul uses this. He's like, there's, there's the gospel that we've preached, and then there's something else. And here's what he says about that. Even if we, Paul puts himself, any apostle or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, the one that's in accordance with the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Well, how do we know it's true gospel, false gospel? Because this is the true gospel. So you look, you listen to preaching, and then you're like, is that this gospel or is it something different? This is the standard. This is judging. It also evaluates teaching as true or false, right? Not everything is heaven or hell. Not any mistake that I would make from the pulpit is immediately damning me, thankfully. Once again, fallible teacher, right? Seeking to deliver to you the infallible word without messing it up. It's kind of a goal each week. It's like, here's what God's word says. Like, can I get it to the table without dropping it? Without sprinkling too many stupid jokes? I love the Bereans. It's another great passage as it comes to the word because the word, the Bible has a unique role evaluating teaching as true or false regardless of who the speaker is. Even the Apostle Paul, again, he, he submitted himself to that in Galatians 1. We see other people submitting him to that in Acts chapter 17. Uh, earlier in this chapter, Paul goes, plants a church in the city of Thessalonica, all right, that wrote, wrote letters to them later, First and Second Thessalonians. And so they heard the word. They're like, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. We love this preaching. They follow him. A church is planted. It's like, wow, that's, that's neat. Gets driven out of there. He goes to another city called Berea. And this is the commendation that Luke, Paul's traveling companion, biographer, if we want to put it that, what's God doing in these things? says, these Jews, the ones in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It's like, well, what could be more noble than believing the gospel? 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. All right, so they'd kind of come to church. They'd be like, that sounds interesting. Let me think about that. Let me compare that to what I, what I already know from Isaiah, what I already know from Deuteronomy, what I already know from the Psalms. So let me go back and review these things that I memorized in Hebrew school and see if Paul's accurate. They made those comparisons. They saw that he was indeed accurate. And then their eagerness continued to grow. Right, but the, the Bible is the judge of all teachers. The Bible is the judge of all teaching. The second London Baptist Confession again says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits like you and your thoughts and your feelings are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest all decrees, counsels, your own thoughts, all to be examined and to stand under the sentence of what? Can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, the fact that we have it, our faith is firmly resolved. Everything must submit to the Word. That which is faithful and true must be in agreement with the Bible. It is the norm or the standard against which everything else must be judged. Do you know how far is a meter or how long is a second or how much power is a watt, right? We buy bulbs that are this many watts. We have rulers that have this many inches or meters. We have watches that have this many seconds and Olympians certainly care about seconds and tenths of seconds and hundreds of seconds. The answers to questions of all these are maintained by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, government branch, that was established in the early 1900s because we were behind like the Germans in uh, technological advancements. Because if you can't all agree on how much a watt is or how far a meter is or an inch, how much power, any of those different things, it's hard to bring together inventions. So the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which has a very interesting website, and a for kids section, because I wanted to understand it. And this interesting website has four comic book-like cartoons. I only watched two because I had to write this sermon. Featuring the Measurement League. The Measurement League. Guardians of the standards of industry who use their incredible powers of measurement to perform amazing feats of science and engineering. And then I was like, I got to get back to my study. National... Institute of Standards and Technology. After you look up the Bible verses, go there and find the meter, the mole, probably my favorite. Things in our world would become very confusing if my inch and your inch were different. That doesn't work. You know, 16 inches off center trying to build something. It's like, well, how long, how long is an inch? If you change, maybe one of you try this, let me know how it goes. I'm not trying it. If you change the distance of a mile, and the duration of an hour, then you're not breaking the speed limit anymore. So try it, maybe. Don't, maybe don't try it. Use that argument, be like, no, 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 my hour, shorter or longer. So really, I wasn't speeding. Don't think that'll go very well. If someone changed the weight of a pound measured on a scale, it might make us happier when we step on it, but it wouldn't be a helpful gauge of our health. You and I both don't get to have our own individual ideas about God and Christ and sin and the gospel and salvation and faith and church and heaven and hell. We don't get to have our own different ideas about that. We must conform to a standard, which isn't a government agency, thankfully. It's the Bible. The Bible provides the definitions for those terms. Revealed by God, spoken from his mouth. You don't get to decide something different based on your own opinion. You submit to the standard. When we use these, we must be in agreement with what God says. Those terms, so many others. And if we're not in agreement with what God says, we are wrong. It's not a consensus between the two. Well, God says this in his word, and I say this. Let's just kind of, can't we come find a middle ground? No. <laughs> like, 
you don't get to come find a middle ground. You get to submit. God's word is the absolute standard from which all doctrine must flow and to which all teaching must conform. Sola Scriptura, unique origin, unique perfection, unique benefits, unique role. What does Sola Scriptura look like in our church? Well, in our gathering, when our church comes together, that's what church is, it's a gathering of God's people. Uh, we read the word. Today we read, heard read Exodus chapter 10, John chapter 8. We read the word, we pray the word. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Our prayer focus as well. I don't know if you were paying attention, I hope you were, paying attention to our brother Lowell's prayer for those believers, but how many different aspects of scripture scattered through Fred's prayer to open our gathering, or Lowell's prayer for these other believers, or Robbie's prayer in the midst of different aspects of our singing. How many of these different things were saturated and and sprinkled with the words? We read the word and we pray the word. Do you know what else we do? We sing the word. His mercy is more. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. What love could remember no wrongs we had done? Jeremiah 31. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Micah chapter seven, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Here it is. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. We sang, Lord, I need you. Reminded me of John 15, verse 5, where Jesus told his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. Which the flip of that would be, right? You need me. So we say, Jesus said, I need you. Second Corinthians 12, 9, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You need me. So we say, I need you. And then different aspects of the verse, the verses of that song talked about sin and, and grace. And so Romans chapter five, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We sang cornerstone. This is like, it's, this is a whole sermon. Psalm 118, 26, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quoted this in the, in the gospels. Peter quoted this in Acts and in his epistle. Isaiah quoted this psalm. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Peter quotes that also. Ephesians 2.20, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. If you thought that that was just sort of a a clever image that a hymn writer came up with, then you missed it because it's biblical in a huge way. Holy, holy, holy. Come on. Where's that from? Where's that from? Isaiah 6. Verse three, joining, as I said earlier, joining the songs of the angels, calling one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And after we get through, not get through, that sounds really bad. After we have finished celebrating the Lord's table, we're gonna come and we're gonna sing Psalm 50. See, it's not just the Psalms that we sing, our responses of singing scripture. We are singing the word in every song. Not just our ideas, but things drawn from scripture. We also confess the word together. We confess the truths of the word, even using language outside of the word, extra biblical documents, but documents that faithfully communicate the word. And then we preach the word. We certainly give priority to this by way of time. We're called together and we preach the word. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. I mean, sometimes the ramblings of my mind leak out. Sorry about that. But if, I'm, if you're just, I, sometimes it's like, why, why, why do they keep coming? Like, why, 
I could just talk so much and just, I'm an odd guy. What are you? And in my pride, it's like, oh, they're here for me. And then the Holy Spirit's like, they're not here for you. They're here for the word. And as long as you're faithfully teaching the word, then God's people will keep coming. And when I pass off the scene, the Lord hasn't returned yet, somebody else will come and occupy this pulpit. Then as long as he faithfully teaches the word, I know that you'll come and you'll hear him. And there'll be ways it'll be like, oh, that's so much better than Peter. Maybe some ways it'll be like, well, you know, he, he was odd, lovable guy. But, but it's not about me. Boy, boy, I need that reminder. It's the word. We preach the word. And you hear the word. So we have sola scriptura in our church. We need it in our lives. We need it. We need to read it personally. And as, as families, we need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to talk about it. We need to discuss it. And above all else, we need to submit to it. Sola Scriptura for forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's not like we get to heaven and we don't need the Bible anymore. It's still the perfect revelation of God. And we'll know it better than we've ever known it before. You either accept these things as true or you reject them. And it's not because of my persuasiveness or because of your own personal investigation that you're like, yes, God's word, yes, perfect, yes, profitable, yes, whatever the other point was. You cannot accept the authority and perfection and uniqueness of God's word unless the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And you, you will not if he isn't. And it'll show itself in your beliefs and in your life. Where, where do you get that from? Paul wrote it, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person, the unsaved, the person dead in their sins, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or discerned of the Spirit. So if you're like, no, I don't care about anything of what you're saying, I reject all of it. If you reject the perfect, absolute authority of God's word, then I call you to repent of that sin. Cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness and know eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you do accept the perfect, absolute authority of God's word, then give thanks to the Holy Spirit for his gracious work in you. You don't get it because of you. It's taught of the Spirit. Let me ask you this in closing. If Jesus followed you around every day, telling you what to do in every situation, do you think it would be easier or harder for you to please God than it is right now? Jesus following you around, telling you what to do in every situation. Do you know that a better scenario than that actually currently exists? Oh, Peter, doesn't get better than Jesus. Jesus said it's going to get better than Jesus walking around. You have the word of God in your hands and you have the spirit of God in your hearts. Live sola scriptura. Let's pray. Father, we must give thanks to you for your word and the work of your grace in our hearts. Using your word even now, please convince us of these things more. May we grow in faith. May we grow in, in repentance for trying to judge your word or, or submit your word to other beliefs. Deliver us from those things. Please bless our time at your table, thinking of Christ who's revealed to us in your word. Amen. Uh, so Jeremy's going to come, uh, be serving the, the Lord's table. Something else that is part of our word-centered worship in obedience to what Christ has said. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then, then he, your Savior, he calls you to come, to take of the bread, to take of the cup, to remember his sacrifice for you and the new covenant in his blood. Uh, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, as evidence perhaps just by a, a disdain for God's word and a rejection of its authority, right? You can't be a, a Christ-following Christian who rejects all aspects of his word. So think through that seriously, right? But you can repent right now. 
do repent right now. Right? If you are a follower of Christ, though, we, we will come together. Uh, you'll be dismissed. You'll receive the elements, return to your seat, and we as God's people will worship together by partaking of the bread, Christ's body, the, the cup, Christ's blood, reminded as was revealed in God's perfect word straight from his mouth uh, that our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did for us and through faith in that.